Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, we, Megan Dom and Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and unhinged. Welcome to a special place in hell. Good morning, Sarah. Happy Band Books Week. Is it the Band Books Week or is it the, was that that last week? No. Well, uh, we are recording this. Band Books Week is mm. officially October 1st through 7th. What? How do we celebrate Band Books Week? Um, I take the whole week off from reading any books. I don't read. I don't read anything. Ban um, them all. It's kind of like yeah, fasting from your life. Yeah, it's fasting. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, um, it's a uh, it's a big deal. I don't know why they didn't suspend parking, uh, alternate side street parking regulations, or anything like that. Um. Yeah. So, uh, uh, what do you what do you think? Um. I mean, every in this political climate, every day is a banned books day. Yeah. It it it's really interesting how, you know, it, it, what it says about your politics, depending on how I guess you feel about this. Except, uh, it's become a lefty issue as of more recently because uh. What conservatives are are banning books left and right and center? Uh, so well, I hear from been Twitter. The ones. I mean, can, it's yeah. always you know it was the uh, religious fundamentalists in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I mean, you know, the, you you could argue that the left bans books, uh, you know, on the front end by deciding whether or not they should be published in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, when it comes to the gender stuff, Abigail Schreier's book, um, what it was not welcome on. Amazon, which was really yeah, and I don't think it was sold in most of the chains. It was sold at Walmart. So that's, I mean, that's not a banning. That's not you're not, you know, t- the government isn't telling you what to do, but somebody is. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I've, we've we've got a lot to talk about here. So this came to my attention because there was, um, in my opinion, an excellent piece <laughs> in your favorite section of the New York Times, the opinion section, um, by Walt, Matthew Walther, who is, um, I guess he's a fairly, he's a regular columnist in the opinion section. He's, uh, he's the editor of The Lamp, which is a Catholic literary journal. I'm, mm. I'm not, I was not familiar with him, but this is a, a fantastic piece. And it's basically saying that the entire concept of, banned books week or recognizing banned books is actually antithetical uh to to the concept of uh promoting literature in the first place because um by by calling attention to all the books that are supposedly banned you are in fact uh inviting us to think about whether or not they should be banned so he he writes um banned book banned books week is or should be eminently mockable. Its proponents trade on the moral currency of defiance. See how brave we are inviting people to read these daring books, but in practice, they are doing the opposite, attempting to reify a consensus. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually like, what, what does banning mean? Like you say, because you could, you know, I guess 
uh, a, a state, a state legislature, some kind of government body could affect school board decisions and get books, um, make, make certain books not available in school libraries or mm-hmm. in public libraries. But, um, there are lots of reasons that, uh, libraries and, you know, even bookstores, but especially libraries choose not to have certain books available at certain times in certain places. And actually, especially bookstores. What am I saying? They're deciding what they're going to stock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By definition, you cannot make every book ever published available everywhere all the time. Right. Right. Uh, but, but I mean, Amazon has changed all of that, hasn't it? I don't, I mean, I struggle to think about do you buy books at Barnes and Nobles still? Do you buy books at, you know, or do you just purchase it on, on Amazon? Um, I try not to purchase books on Amazon actually because Why? it's, um, it's not as good for the, the, the author. I, I try to buy, really? if I'm in a, yeah, if I'm in an independent bookstore, I'll try to buy a book there. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm okay. not, uh, I, I definitely purchase stuff on Amazon. And, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, and I actually, I like having the physical copy of the book. I don't like reading on Kindle. Mm-hmm. I don't like, uh, and I don't do a lot of audiobooks. I like having like a nice, even hardcover book, but I'm unusual in that way. I like hard, I like hard cover, like, you know, physical books. I have tons of Kindle books. I do audio. The interesting thing is that I absorb the information differently depending on the medium. There are some books where I have the physical book, I have the Kindle book, and I also have like an audio like transcription of the book. And the way that it comes into my brain is so different. And it, it kind of shocks me. It makes me think about what is the best way to absorb what kind of information? Am I making a mistake when I you know choose one plaf- one kind of mode over another? Any kind of technical book, like very deep, tough read, science-y kind of book that, that I feel like I need a physical book and I need it and I need to hold it, you know, and that helps a lot. That helps with retention. It helps me with like remembering physically where things are. There's something about, you know, you know, knowing where it is physically in the book helps with memory like it 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 supplements your memory of like the content itself so you're like oh, in the beginning somewhere if i feel that it was in the beginning somewhere that there was this argument you can go back and revisit it you'll remember it better even that way so i think that tough stuff like that the stuff that's hard to really absorb is best in hardcover form but stories fiction i really like listening to that mm, mm-hmm um, when you were growing up, were you aware that certain books were like considered dangerous or like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, so I come from a, you know, a place in the world where there's right. exactly who am I it's talking? It's like to? perfectly fine to ban information all the time. Like this is something I think Americans take for granted that we have access to a lot of things, but um, you know, it, it, the control of what people get to read or see is, uh, you know, it, it, it is considered rightfully the duty of authorities and governmental bodies, um, in many parts of the world. And no one blink, you know, no one, no one, you know, bats an eye, bats an eye, right? Yeah. At, mm-hmm. at, at the idea that, um, the government is sifting through, you know, the, the kinds of books that are 
available in bookstores in your country. No one, you know, people, people just think that that's an appropriate use of power with the exception of, of the West. So, I mean, I like the spirit of banned books weeks, uh, banned books week. It's true that it's kind of a cliche and what, um, this op-ed writer, uh, Math, Matthew, Matthew Walther. Walther. Mm-hmm. Matthew Walther. I, I think he's right that there is, it's, it's, it's kind of a, there's a politics to why people are, are talking about it and in what form and what kind of censorship they pay attention to, really. You know, like, as you said, like the fact that the publishing industry is so heavily dominated by left wing voices and progressive voices has, of course, it has, uh, an indirect sort of soft, censorious effect on conservative thought, right-wing thought, or even centrist thought that challenges, or heterodox thought that challenges, um, you know, certain liberal, you know, sacred cows. Um, so it, it, I don't know, it's just kind of a fluffy thing, right? Like, do you pay much attention to Man Books Week? Like, does it, does it mean much to you? I know Harry Potter was banned, and I remember, you know, I I grew up in the South, so I I thought banned anything that was banned was just because like conservative idiots were getting annoyed by something they shouldn't be getting annoyed. Or they by or they that. they're usually just confused about it. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, like they, they haven't they don't read know it, what it, know is. what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm just going to read a little bit from this uh, Matthew Walther piece because this is, speaks directly to what you're saying. So he writes, take a look at the most banned and challenged books from 2010 to 2019, according to the American Library Association. Many are war horses of junior high English um, with millions of copies in print, like To Kill a Mockingbird of Mice and Men, 1984. Others are best-selling fantasy novels like The Handmaid's Tale and The Hunger Games. The list for 2022 is dominated by politically inflected, sexually explicit coming of age stories. Gender queer is one, flamer is another, often in comic book form or otherwise aimed at young adults, many of which have made the New York Times bestseller list. These are hardly pariah texts. But in zero cases since the advent of Banned Books Week has a local or state ordinance been passed in this country that forbids the sale or general possession of any of the books in question. Okay, he says what the American Library Association means when it implies that a book has been banned is that having typically been purchased with public funds by a library or school, it has subsequently been challenged. And challenge is a ludicrous term, he says, of a term, ludicrous term of art that can designate something as innocuous as being the subject of a single critical remark by a patron or parent. If after this challenge, a book is withdrawn from the library or if access to it is restricted in some other way, or even if it remains in the collection, it now belongs to Banned Books Week. It, wow. It's kind of like getting on the on the hate watch list yeah, for the wow. Southern Poverty Law Center. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much and uh and they get to pad their list and I, wow, I didn't yeah, know that's that. That's great. I'd like my book to get banned. That would be really good for you. Yeah. This podcast should get banned. Well, look, we're working on it. Every time every time you can't find the podcast, it's not that's what's actually happening. Problem. It's because it's been banned. Yeah, it's in the banned podcast list. Um, that's what um, I can't believe that hasn't occurred to us to do. But I think it's <laughs> it's just like it's cancellation porn, right? Like people accuse heterodox people of like wanting to get canceled all the time because it's so good for you, and it is it is pretty good for you. Mm-hmm. But you want to get can- you want to be already somebody with a platform and some amount of power, and then you get canceled. So the remaining power left to you, you can you know then raise a big stink. But if you are actually powerless, you get canceled. Well, uh, 
it, it's not good for you at that point. Um, so I, I'm conditionally pro banning, uh, pro pro cancellation. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a lot of this has to do with, with libraries. Right. Uh, and, um, I want to talk about libraries a little bit here. Um, what, um, so did you go to the library a lot when you were all the time? A kid? I yeah, lived in the library. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, did you like, um, what is your impression now of who goes to the library and what they're checking out? I don't actually see too many people. Like I still go to the library to work occasionally. Um, oh. and I, and I go for book sales, mm-hmm. which are awesome. Um, but I, I feel like mostly people are just there to study. They just want a quiet place to study and they're not really going through the stacks. Like I don't really see too much of that. Like here and there, you know, somebody will be browsing around, but mostly people are just sitting in the couches or in the desks and they just want a quiet place, uh, that, is like conducive to, to, to whatever it is that they're there, there to do. And there'll be like some like homeless people kind of, you know, people who just don't have access to computers who are there, toddlers, kids, like nannies and, and babysitters with their, mm-hmm. their charges around. So it just doesn't feel like it's really a place where you go to actually read, but you know, not, or, or to read library books specifically. Um, it was kind of sad. I, that's what I used to do though. Like that's what it was for me. Yeah. I mean, I went all the time. I mean, if, if they didn't have something in the school library, I would go to the town library mm-hmm. and I read so many, um, I, I would get so many old magazines. Like I would read all the, you know, back, back copies of Rolling Stone and Esquire from like the seventies, um, and the eighties. I mean, I all those new journalists like Hunter S. Thompson and Tom Wolf and, you know, I, I would, I discovered them through like reading Rolling Stone, uh, magazines that I checked out of the library or read yeah. in the library in some cases, uh, because it was, you know, there was no internet. So that was like where the magic was. And I used to love going, looking, finding something in the card catalog. And if it was on microfiche or microfilm, you would have to fill out a request and hand it to the librarian. And she would go way down into the basement and pull out like a microfilm thing or microfiche. Sometimes those were two different mediums. And then you would like thread what it. What is into a microfiche? Um, it's just, well, microfilm is like a, it's like a tape and there okay. is like this plastic tape where they would, you know, o- o- any old newspaper, Going back to probably the, probably the mid to late 1800s, they would have maybe not that far back, but maybe certainly late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, they, uh, they wouldn't have the physical paper. So it had been transferred onto this film. It's, it was like the early version of the way back machine. And it would be, so they would be on this film and you would put it into this machine and you would thread it. It was literally like, like a, tape and then you would like scroll through it looking through this viewfinder to find the article or the citation that you were looking for and it mm. was like so thrilling because you were just digging deep into something um rediscovering but, history yeah yeah and um yeah it was just great to be in there but yeah so it, um in in anticipation of this conversation i actually talked to um Somebody I know, a friend of mine who is a librarian. Uh, she works in library in a small town, let's just say in a rural area, a very poor area. 
And I just called her up and I was like, what is it like to be a librarian now? And who's checking out books? And what is the, the situation in the library? And, and do you actually ban books? Does your library or does your town council tell you what you can and you cannot have in the library? Um, and we had a really long conversation and she said, first of all, that like the entire job of a librarian is to weed out books, to bring in more books <laughs> and weed out and weed out other books, and also to deal with interlibrary loans. So by definition, any given library is not going to have all the books. They're going to, you know, throughout the state, often they are constantly moving books around. So mm -hmm. if something is not available in your library, you can request it and they will bring it. They will literally like you know, have a van and they will transport the books that somebody requests. Um, you know, she said, you, you, you know, there's, there's a limited budget by definition. Um, and so, you know, part of the, the principle of a library is to have a collection of books that meets the community's needs. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's very much a reflection of, of what people want. And mm -hmm. the library has a board of directors and they work with the city council and the lo local library acts with school librarians. Um, and she said she compared it to actually a hypocritic, hypocritic oath that physicians take, right? Like you're supposed to meet the needs of your population. A, li a librarian doesn't get to decide what is in the library. Mm. You're really not supposed to. You have to listen to what people want and provide that. And she says that in the last few years, that's really started to change because the social justice sensibility has infiltrated the the library world so you get these sort of activist librarians mm -hmm. who are doing stuff like you know making jk rowling books unavailable <laughs> or or turning them so that the cover so that the spine doesn't face out or things like that um and those are sort of isolated cases but but by and large it's not like there's some kind of government entity pulling the strings and getting books banned. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. And in fact, um, this, this is really interesting. So uh, there was, um, uh, there was a, the heritage foundation of all places. Sorry. That's going to set some people off. Did, um, did like a survey of, um, of, of libraries that had supposedly banned books and they actually sort of, they actually examined their card catalogs and found that in most cases they weren't banned at all. So um just going to read a little bit from their report. Um, uh, the, so it's Pen America, which is a big literary organization that fights censorship. Um, they had a report claiming claiming to identify more than 2,500 books that had been banned in public schools during the 2021-2022 school year. Um, and uh, the Heritage Foundation uh, found that this was false because they examined online card catalogs and found that 74% of the books that PEN America identified as banned from school libraries are actually listed as available in the catalogs of those school districts. In many cases, they saw that copies of those books were currently checked out and in use by students. <laughs> um, now, you could say maybe, um, maybe some nosy parents had gone and checked them out. Uh, and never returned them and mm -hmm. kept them out of circulation that way. 
uh, I suppose there's all, court, all sorts of circumstances that could make this, uh, make this research fallible. But, uh, I do think that this is something approaching a moral panic. Is that too strong a framing? I mean, I think, aren't we just in one moral panic after another? I'm exhausted. I don't want to be. I know. It's a lot know. of, a lot of emotional labor. Yeah. I don't want to be panicked anymore. And yet, here we are on this podcast, creating moral panics. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, yeah. you know, I feel like what's sad about it is I, I loved what you, you know, what you're a librarian had to say about what she felt like the role of librarians. Or I guess I never thought about it that way in the specific sense of serving the community. Um, and But I really like that. I think that that is the appropriate you know, the appropriate approach to take. And I, it, it's just sad that, you know, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, but it's, I think it's less of an activist versus somebody who, who's principled kind of a thing, but it's just a generational shift in how young people approach professions and professional life. Like it just seems like activism is infused into everything. Um, in the mind of a, of a person under like, you know, 35 in a way that it just isn't with a person, you know, that's like Gen X, um, or above that. And I think that that, what are we going to do? You know, because it's going to have these, it's going to have huge effects once you add them all up together. Um, but at, you know, at the moment, we still have some old ladies wandering around the library doing what they think, you know, their community really needs, which I, I think is, I think is great. I, I wanted to be a librarian. Did I, did I tell you that? Did you know that? No, you still could. Don't give up. I wanted to do it because I thought it was, it was like a, the dream job for me until I found out that it made no money. They made no money. And then I was like, no longer is it the dream job. But yeah. I love the idea of it, just sitting around at the library all day. Well, except that you wouldn't be because part two of this conversation with mm. my librarian friend uh, was that basically these libraries have become de facto homeless shelters. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this mm-hmm. was extraordinary what she described. This is not a big city library. Again, this is a small rural town. And she said that in the last six months, I mean, there are people in there doing drugs, um, and, and having sex for money in the bathrooms. She said that in her library in the last six months, there have been 20 to 30 overdoses in the library. What? Yes. She said people have had to be revived with Narcan. Uh, she says we've had library staff leaning over a person who's not breathing. What? Um, yeah, it's, it's astonishing. She said they've had librarian assaulted, two librarians groped, multiple altercations with staff because there are mask mandates. So you get library staff who have to tell homeless people who are in there to wear masks. Um, it's really what she was describing was shocking. I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked because part of the reason I don't go to the library as much as I used to is because there are so many homeless people in there. Like it literally, she was saying this too, like it smells. There is a smell now often when you go into the library because mm-hmm. it is like this. I mean, that's certainly the case. They go to the downtown Los Angeles public library, not in the local, not, not so much in my local library, but in a lot of these in the more urban areas, this is what you get. Um, and, uh, it, it was amazing what she was describing. And, you know, she says, she says that the library association 
is obsessed with banned books and, and misinformation. Like that's constantly a thing that comes up, misinformation. Um, but they're not meeting the needs of the people who come in. Right. <laughs> right. Is, um, it's, it was extraordinary what she was describing. Um, so maybe the, the American uh, Library Association should team up with the Coalition for the Homeless or something. Yeah. I, I don't know how much, uh, I mean, the homelessness problem is huge and I don't want to get into it, um, into that discussion, but it is terrible to see public spaces being taken away from, you know, the, the people that, who, who really need them because we have, uh, hom homeless people who have Sometimes nowhere else to go. Sometimes it's just that there's a lot of them in that area for some specific reason. Um, but I, I, I live in an area that's like well to do. So I don't have a homeless people problem in, in my library so much. Um, thankfully I don't live in an inner city kind of area. I remember I went to the, when I went to the New York library. Have you been to this library? Well, the New York public library, the main one is not. It's not that's, a library. That, no, yeah, you can't. I don't think you can check out books. What? No, oh, it's like I, I, I no, was so excited beautiful. to go. I mean, wow, I went yeah. to visit. Like I was yeah. like, I can't. I love libraries. I can't. You know, I want to. I want to. I was in New York and I had some time, and I was like, I'm going to go to the public library, and I'm going to enjoy my afternoon there. And there were no books in the New York Public Library. There were. I guess there were. They were hidden underground somewhere. You could request a book from a librarian and they would bring it out to, I'm not sure what it was at the moment, but at that time, but there were no, there were no physical books visible to you. Um, and I remember at that moment thinking like, is it, is it that bad? Is it that hard to keep like order in? Well, that's a different library, in that but, library. Yeah, but this is a different, that, yeah. the, the main near public library with the lions outside and everything. It's, it's, there's certain collections in there and, People right, but what about just research. regular books? You yeah, just but there's a, there's, a, there's many many local branch libraries. That mm -hmm, yeah, I ended so, up going to yeah. some of the more lo local ones, but I've I, I remember I went to one library in which the bathroom had kind of like a really terrible smell. Uh, it was definitely like some homeless person or some mentally ill person probably was there, and they had just like smeared feces everywhere. Um, and I remember thinking like I feel so bad for whoever has to work at this library because of course they they encounter this from time to time because it's a public, you know, it's a, it's a public institution. Um, yeah, I don't, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible yeah. because I, I used to go there as a kid. And I think that if where I grew up, um, there, that library was not that nice of a library. It was, it was a nicer space than some of the other public spaces, but it wasn't that nice of a space. And if there were too many homeless people in there or something or, you know, drug addicts or whatever, something dangerous, my parents wouldn't have let me go. It was one of the few places that I could go and I could escape. It would have been terrible to have that taken away. I think maybe I wouldn't have even wanted to go if it was, you know, smelly and whatever. You yeah. Know. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, just a note on the New York Public Library. There's an incredible fellowship. There's something called the Coleman Center and you can get a, a, a fellowship. This is for scholars and, uh, literary writers and others. And they give you this beautiful, beautiful space to work in in the library. And, um, I think they pay you and you can do your work on your project. It's like a little writer's 
little residency in the library. But you, oh, you, wow. go, you go every day. You don't sleep there or anything. That would be, okay. that'd be an interesting element. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, um, you know, in terms of use, so my, my librarian friend said that you still had a lot of kids coming in and a lot of people checking out books. Um, so it's not, it's not, uh, I know you and I were talking earlier and we weren't sure if people were still actually checking out physical books from the library. Yeah. Um, were they just getting electronic copies of things and such? And she said, no, they're actually checking out books. And mm. like you say, people are coming in with their kids and there's lots of kid stuff to do, um, and story hours and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a totally different landscape. Yeah. I um, don't know if I would have been, if I was growing up today, I don't know if I would have gone to the library as often. I, I just don't know if I, so maybe it's a different population. Well, I guess you wouldn't have to. Book. I yeah, mean, I would were you using to. the internet when you went? This was, yeah, this was before I had like high speed internet when we were like dialing in and, you know, I had to take the phone away from my mom <laughs> and, and have very, very slow, um, you know, internet. I don't think that it, it wasn't really accessible to me. So the the library was where I went to get information mm-hmm. if I wanted it. But I, now that that's not the case, I wonder whether as a kid, I would have wanted to go, you know? Yeah. Um, it was like, I mean, it's actually incredible. So we were talking about who goes to library school, for instance. Okay. So when you went to the library, do you remember interacting with the librarians? Mm, at my school library? Yes. I was actually friends. Yeah. My, like at the school library. Yes. Not at the public library. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. I remember both. So, I mean, now there's this whole emergence of the master's degree in library science. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't know much about that. Uh, and obviously this is just one source, but she was saying that it's a little bit, it's one of those degrees that it's kind of like an MFA. Like there's a glut of library science master's programs now, and you have to have a master's degree in order to get a job at a library, basically. I mean, not if you're just sort of like at a very low level, you know, moving books around on a cart, but if you are, for instance, the the children's librarian or the head of reference or something like that, you have to have a master's degree. But now all these people are getting master's degrees and they can't get jobs and the pay is terrible anyway. Um, so, but it's the same kind of activist cohort that goes and gets, um, like a social degree. More more privileged group of people that are, that are getting this degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's so, it's such a strange thing because they're getting these, it's like this weird, um, it's like this strange intersection of extreme, like, like you're like people who are just operating in a, in a bubble, like in a very theoretical level. Like I like, I like books and I like the idea of cataloging and I want to get a library science degree, but then they end up working on the front lines of the opioid crisis. <laughs> um, I mean, she in Canada apparently there were librarians literally burning books, uh, protesting. I'm not sure who, probably J.K. Rowling, um, which is just ex- an extraordinary image to contemplate. Yeah, that you know, I I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. It's... So, um, yeah, but uh, but 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 banned books i mean it's sort of i think we talked about this before like um you know there was all this talk about amanda gorman's 
poetry book, the the hill we climb. She was the poet who read the the, the she was the, she's the the teenage poet who read the her poem at the Biden inauguration, and is very attractive and fashionable and is a star on many levels now. Uh, and there was talk about her book having been banned, I believe, in Florida. And in fact, it was taken off of one the shelf in one area and moved to another, which is... Uh, a kind of a fetish for this. Um, yeah. There's a desire to be banned because of the cachet that it provides you because you get to be, you know, amongst To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, like those were important ideas that people wanted suppressed because they were afraid of them or something. And, and that is, that is also true of, true of you. Um, you know, poet, uh, oh. I think it's just absurd. Like, but, um, do you still go to libraries? Uh, I haven't been to a library in a long time. Really? I mean, I, it's like, do we need them because, uh, we have the internet? Yeah, that it's just a it's a it's a public space that is being destroyed by two forces. The first is just you know it's there's a pull and a push. There's a push out of there if you're if you're dealing with homeless people or whatever you know, um, and a- activist librarians who are pushing books up up your nose that you're not you know all that interested in. And then there's a, a the call of the internet that has everything at your fingertips. I mean, I remember I. I think that was the, the the time that I really stopped going to the library was when we got high speed internet, like when we got um, a cable internet. Like we, it no longer you didn't have to dial in; it didn't uh, affect your phone. Um, that that was when I think I just stopped going to libraries until until I was you know until now. But I use it as a workspace and a place to get cheap books more than. Uh, you know, a place to actually browse it doesn't. Fe- it doesn't feel like it does that. It serves that purpose well anymore, which is really sad. But it's just like this is this is what's happening to public spaces everywhere. You can shop better. Why go to the mall when you can shop online? And Ugh. you don't have to deal with mall people. You don't have to deal with parking. You don't have. To, I mean, there's so many difficulties I in know. the physical space. And if you're in one of these cities that have a lot of challenges for a variety of reasons, like I mean, then you really don't want to have to put up with all of that you just escape to this digital world where you can access a lot of the same things i think it's really sad we're just cocoon more and more you know at home i, I, I want to find like a going way to, to a movie have... theater for instance right like nobody goes to a movie in the movie theater people uh, uh, younger people will watch movies beautiful movies like movies that are made to be seen on some kind of a screen and they will watch them on their phones um, yeah that's you know, I see that happening, and it boils my blood because I'm just like, I, you can't even see the detail I that know. you are meant to ca- you're meant to see. That's relevant to the story, even. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you, yeah. you can't see it. Um, I know. It, do you buy everything online? I, I'm trying to think. Like, I think that going to a mall and having to deal with mall shoppers is worse than going to the library and having to be around homeless people. I would rather be around homeless people than most people who are in a mall. My mall is dead. Yeah. My mom doesn't have people. It's a go, I mean, and it doesn't even have clothes much anymore because it seems like they don't, they're just, they're not stocking the shelves the way they, they used to. Right. It's, not, it's not necessary because people aren't really like super there. Um, you know, I went to the, to, to get an outfit for this debate. I don't have any clothes. You know, oh, like, I don't it have was any fantastic. Nice my little 
my little lawyery outfit. I don't know. I, I, I bought that just for the debate because it just didn't have anything to wear. Um, and I was like, where am I supposed to shop now? Like, what am I supposed to do? I went to, uh, the, the, the former shopping plazas in DC and they were just ghost towns. There was nothing there and a bunch of shops were just shut down. It was so odd. I, I just felt like there is no, you know, where is the public square? It's just, <laughs> it wow. is online if it's yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's certainly not in like a physical location in the same way anymore. Um, it was really, it, it was really sad no, to see everything become just ghost towns. And the only people that I saw, you know, when I was walking around in DC were homeless people. And there was nobody else. Like there were shoppers, you know, it, there was tons of restaurants in the area, but looks like maybe no one was there. Or people weren't, just weren't going. Places were getting boarded up. It's just, it's really sad. I know. I thought we would recover better than we have from COVID, but I think that some of this might just be permanent. I was just in Denver last week and the homelessness there was just shocking. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's similar to Seattle and Portland, all those Pacific Northwest cities. But it just seemed, I mean, and I, I feel like in Los Angeles, you definitely see it all over the place, but it seems concentrated in certain pockets. And I was in a, like a, you know, nice area with expensive condos and high rent apartments, apartment buildings going up and hipster coffee shops and restaurants. And it was like zombie apocalypse. Um, that's really so sad. sad. Just yeah. really, really sad. And it's frightening. You know, it's extremely frightening. Um, it, it's contributing to the, to the, you know, the lack of foot traffic because there's no way I would send like my kid to go like it, it, parents in so many different ways are like super helicoptery now, you know, and they don't even know a time. Even they were raised in, you know, people my age were raised with helicopter parents. So we don't even know any other way to live, but. I would be nervous sending my, like, letting my kids just walk around, like, in a downtown, like, part of the live, formerly lively part of the city, because you cannot, you don't know what homeless people are going to do. You, you cannot oh, yeah. protect yourself in the same way. I know. There was, uh, there's a terrible story. It looks like it just broke last night, and I don't know. I suspect we'll be hearing more about it. Um, there's a young man, um, in Brooklyn who was, stabbed to death by a homeless person um a couple nights ago uh and just the 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 guy it was like a, a young activist he was very involved in climate activism harm reduction policies <laughs> like the it, oh, i think this was philadelphia no it was in bedsty no? it was in brooklyn oh okay um, yeah well, because i, I saw there there's, two oh, i'm no. sure yes yes um oh, God. but in this case I, i'll be very curious to see if this gets covered a lot by the media or if a lot of is made of this, because this appears to be a young guy who was, you know, mm-hmm. would have been, you know, very much uh, in favor of the kinds of progressive policies that lead to this kind of situation. And I, I, I suspect that there's going to be a lot of kind of conservative types that leap on this and say, you know, look, this is what happens. I mean, it's a tragic, horrible story. Apparently he was, it was, it was late at night and he was coming home with a friend from a wedding or something and got into some kind of encounter altercation with a completely unhinged homeless guy and the guy stabbed him and he bled, bled to death on the street while his friend woman, uh, 
tried to hold him and save him. I mean, absolutely awful. So horrible. Horrible. I I feel like a couple of these stories have broken recently. There was that CEO, this tech CEO. um, Did you hear about, did you hear about this? Oh, I think so. That was really sad too. It was a young woman um, who founded a company. I can actually just eco eco map, um, eco map technologies uh, and it, it, she was murdered by, I mean, somebody who should have been in prison still, but yeah. was let out. Um, and it, it's, it's terrible to see this happening to young people. And I wonder if there's going to be like a backlash. I'm sure it could end up getting Trump reelected. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, let's not let's not go. Let's there. Not go, let's not go there, As but. an aside, just to wrap up the the library conversation, um, I, I think I mentioned in a recent episode um, the this phenomenon of library water fountains having the best water that you could possibly find. Um, incredibly cold, consistently high quality. You didn't know what I was talking about. Um, either this is a, a meeting of great minds, or I somehow unconsciously internalized this. It, um, as a couple of our listeners pointed out, there was a comedy series called Difficult People um, that was it was created by the comedian Julie Klausner, uh, and it also starred Billy Eichner. And the pilot episode was called Library Water. And in it, these two characters decided that they were going to start a business that involved bottling, bottling the, uh, water from library water fountains and, and selling it because it tasted so good. So why? I'm not the why only it one. So it just does. It's so cold. I think it, maybe it has to do with, I really don't know because I asked my friend this when I was talking to her, my friend, the librarian. I said, have you noticed this? And she said, mm, not really, but I think maybe people don't drink from water fountains so much anymore. Okay. This is another question. <laughs> like, you know, cause in my day, if you're little kids, we're always constantly stopping and wanting to drink out of every water fountain. It was like the the parents were always like, stop it. You don't have to stop at every water fountain. Like a, like a dog having to pee on every corner because you've just had to try every water fountain. And uh, I think that people just are used to bottled water now. And so I never liked water fountains because that was it was just disgusting. Oh. Like the idea of it was disgusting to me. It was disgusting to me when I was a kid. I remember at school where it's like, I'd rather be thirsty than <laughs> to drink out of that thing. And you, you know, you're in elementary school, you're with the other kids. If some of them are disgusting, yeah, but you don't have to touch like, it. You just touch full... the water stream. You don't have to touch one, anything. But some of the other kids, they're putting their full mouth on yeah, it. Yeah, but you don't you put know? your mouth on the porcelain but the or initial. The metal. The initial burst carries uh, well, some just saliva. Let it, with, just oh, let it, and then you it's know, like splattering it everywhere. It's like everybody's. It's no. too much. Give it a second. I, I didn't. I, I I was always disgusted. I remember just when, disgusted. Um. Yeah. I, I people started carrying plastic water bottles. Probably I don't know in the eighties. Mm. And I remember my father just being so disgusted. Like he was like, I can't stand all these people walking around carrying water bottles. Like, what is it with this? What is it with this? Just how about just, just wait till you get home. How about you drink water when you get home? That's how hard is that? I would do that. That's what I, that's what I used to do. I didn't have plastic water bottles, but I would just wait and that was fine. But you know, I used to fast in school. Um, when Ramadan came around. Oh, I thought you meant just out of because you want no to i mean I, I was just like practiced at being okay. thirsty okay in in, in 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 school but i remember being very disgusted out of the of the water fountain at school still disgusted won't drink out of it 
I do carry a water bottle. I just fill it, you know, at home. Mm-hmm. Not plastic. Is there anything else we want to talk about? There was a there was a big Twitter Twitter controversy uh, the other day involving the use of uh, the the greeting you guys mm. calling people you guys is considered a microaggression mm. now um i call everybody you guys i when i teach i call my students you guys uh this is a if you grow up on the east coast i think you this is just what you default to but apparently this is not gender inclusive and you shouldn't do it um and now here's my uh, and and it's been suggested that an alternative would be y'all I think mm-hmm. saying y'all is culturally appropriative if you are not from the South. I agree. Yeah. And plus it just, you just sound like an idiot. Yeah. I think you shouldn't do it. You can do it if you're black and yeah. from anywhere. Yeah. But you can't do it. Uh, if you're, if you're white or a white adjacent race, I thought, I don't think it's okay. Yeah. And I also see, um, there is this u- using y'all online. It, it, it codes as very social justice oriented. Like, I Does feel it? like there's a lot of like, if you're, if you're calling somebody out or, you know, attempting to cancel them, it's sort of like, it's a very, it's a way of being dismissive. Like y'all are, you know, you, whatever. I like, just never see it anymore. I feel like I, I see it see really. It. I feel like I see it all the time. It's, it's very, it's, it feels hostile when it's used in, um, like a social justice corrective yeah, sure. context with the clap. You know, yes. The little clap emoji. Yes. Sure. Yeah. I think um, I know what you mean. Yeah. Outside of that context, I just don't see it very much. I miss it. I used did to you love say it. y'all when you were, do, do you still say it? I mean, you, I didn't you know there was Texas. anything wrong with it. I didn't know there was anything wrong with it until I moved out. And then it was like, p- people were, people would laugh at it. They, they would think it was cute. You know, they'd be like, look at her. Did you say y'all? Like, so did, yeah. Do, like, do you, do you, did you ride to school on a horse? Right. It was like that kind of like very condescending, but, but I just used it regularly all the time. I didn't know, I didn't know there was un- anything weird about it. Um, I actually grew up in Texas until I was nine and I said y'all all the time and had mm-hmm. like a little Texas accent. And then we moved to New Jersey and I said y'all and I was made fun of so vociferously yeah. <laughs> that that ended real quick. Um, yeah, but it was good. Yeah. It's good. I liked it. I thought it was a great, I thought it was great. Um, I think a lot of Southern isms are great, especially Texas isms are great. Like the specific things that Texas Texans do and say. Like what? Um, well, there's like little things. I don't know, you know, if may, this might not be specific to Texas, but I encountered this when I was talking to my like cousins who were raised in New York. Um, when I would say things like, if I, I handed them a piece, piece of trash, I handed my cousin a piece of trash and I said, can you put it up? What? And by that, I meant put it away, throw it away. Throw it out. It, throw it out. But I said, put it up. And she was like, like, up? <laughs> On like, a high she, was, she was like, what do you, what, like, this is a, this is clearly trash. Like, what, what do you, you know, um, and then we had like a little discussion about it. And like my other cousin, who's also from New York, was like, she means throw it away. That's what they say in Texas. Like they just they say that sometimes. Wow. Yeah. That's they a, just put put it up. 
Yeah, Put or it up. pitch it. I feel like that's this is also a, a colloquialism, like pitch it instead of chuck it. People on the East hmm. Coast would say you can chuck that, and people in the South or the Midwest would say you can pitch that. Pitch that. Pitch it. Yeah, hmm. my my mother, uh, my parents oh were my from God. the Southern Midwest, and they would say pitch. My mother would well, say part. you can pitch that. They're from Southern Illinois, which is like oh, that's a little different. Near, yeah. yeah, it's like kind of Kentucky, and it's Ozarks adjacent. Yeah. I don't know if I ever heard pitch it. I'm yeah, to my mother said it all the time. Toss it. Toss, right. Toss, chuck. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the other thing I'm seeing too a lot is folks. People saying folks instead of you guys, which I cannot stand. Unless you're an airline pilot. I think if you're an airline pilot and you're addressing the passengers, you can say, hey, folks. Or if you're Barack Obama, then you can say it. Right. I think also, he says he says it well. Yeah, I feel Oops. like it's a safe. It's like something that you can do that's that's like very safe. But I think it also starts having. Well, there's a kind of hokey corniness. I'm running for political office flavor to folks. Yeah, there is. But then there's folks. <laughs> it's a mark of a politician. Yes, you know? but then there's. Like, folks I'm just like you, Oops. with an X F O L X. Yeah, which you see uh, in written form, and that's a. That's a mark of an activist. Yeah, that's uh, a mark of an activist. Signal as well. So yeah. I believe that the service that delivers um, uh, estrogen to transgender people, the sort of mail order service online, the the telemed uh, mail order service is called Folks with an X. Oh wow! Yes, that's. I think I saw that. I think I knew that, but I like that. That's clever, isn't it? Let's just what what so what are we supposed to say now? I'm gonna say I can you still guys. say y'all. I think I think I can still say y'all. What about you people? <laughs> I should say you people. That's what I'm. I'm gonna play it yeah. safe. Yeah, y- you people that'll should work. just go back to where you came. <laughs> you from. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always works. Um, you know what book? Uh, you know what children's book should definitely be banned? The Giving Tree. <gasps> Did you Why? read that book? I have that book. It's horrible. It's amazing. It's I awful. Love it. It's profound. It's so it's so deep. It's so tragic. It's no, so dark. No, 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 no. But it's true. It's actually true. Like, I read that? it as I'm reading it as a parent, and I'm like super identifying with that tree. All right, let's talk about this because I just think it's it's about it's a very I mean it's very should dark. we spoil the book. For people who haven't read it, yeah, maybe we should like have a stop book what you're doing and read it. You know, I think stop we should have a book club a for this book. podcast, and we're going to read the Giving Tree first, and then we're going to read Gender Queer. But no, it's just like this awful. It's this awful person who just takes and takes and takes until there's nothing left. And I feel like that's like, is it, what is the tree supposed to represent? Like a mother or something? It's parenthood, but yeah, that's that is I think the theme is like parenthood. And the child is very, like, the kid, the boy. He is, you know, yeah, he just, th- that's the story. The story is that he takes and takes from the tree, and the tree keeps giving. And the tree is happy every time. I mean, that's the sad part, is that, that the tree will give, the boy will use that thing, and the tree will be happy. Um, but then the boy will, you know, not visit, uh, not come back, or then he does come back when he needs something else. And every time he takes from the tree, it's something that the tree, that, that's a part of the tree, you know, like it's branches, um, or whatever, you know, it's trunk in the end. Um, but they kind of make peace and it ends in this like beautiful way. The tree is still happy, you know, <laughs> it's, I think it sends a very bad message. 
What's the message? I just think? think it's a bad message that like there are some relationships in which this is an acceptable dynamic. That I think that is the parent-child relationship. But I think that's so, what it is. Whether or not that's acceptable is. I think Shel Silverstein. Um, I mean, he was kind of a cynical guy. Like he was not a warm, fuzzy guy. A lot of these famous children's book authors, like they didn't have children themselves. Maurice Sendak, for instance. Um, and he was they horrifying were sort of dark personalities. Too. What's that? Mm-hmm. He was horrifying looking too. So my Marie copy Sendak? of the book. Well, those books are beautiful. No, Shel Silverstein. Oh, Shel Silverstein. <laughs> my my copy of it has a picture of him at the at the back, and it's terrifying. Like you, I mean, it would scare me half to death if I was a kid. What does he look at like? Face. Look it up. Um, play a uh, face only a mother could love, or a, a giving tree. Oh well, it, of it, course. It was, <laughs> but. It, I, I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting that your um, that your reaction to it was so. For me, it's like it was sad. It was beautiful. It was poetic. It is dark. I don't know if it sends any kind of message one way or the other. I think it just describes a reality that I think is true. Um, and there is something about parenthood where you're just sort of you're happy to give something of yourself. You know, I mean, I talked to. Um, you know, young mothers and also like we discuss like, are we going to have kids, more kids or whatever? What are we going to do? And, you know, it, there is a sense of like, if we do this again, you know, and I think about that with myself, like if I do it again, every, you know, with me, pregnancy was terrible. It was terrible. It took a lot from me. I will never recover again. There's parts of my body that are never going to recover again. There's like, like illnesses and conditions that will last me for the rest of my life. And the next one will be worse and the next one will be worse. You know, it will just take more and more of you. Well, as long as you don't, but then you just keep doing recordings. it. Right. But then you just keep, you know, you keep doing it and then you're happy. Um, it, it, it is toxic, I guess, but I don't even know if it makes sense to view it in those terms. I just, yeah. I mean, I'm not the only one. A lot of people hate the giving tree. I am not the only one who feels this way. No, I'm sure. Um, I, I no. now that you've said it, it, of course, that 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 this is also a conclusion that many people draw from it. But for me, I I found it to be very, like, sad but beautiful, and true when it comes. That's how I think of my parents too. I think of them as kind of like giving trees, and it's terrible. And I try to fix that relationship, but I don't know how whether it can be fixed. I think that might be the, just the nature of things to some degree, because a child's love to a parent it it, it can't equal. It, it isn't equal. It, mustn't be equal you know it would be- not equal to the parents love for the child right yeah you know what if the character in the giving tree had been a little girl would that change the sort of <sighs> this is the problem it? with with changing you know he's in in you know the general he to refer to man to she is because people then say okay now there's a gender element, you know, and, and then they start reading it in that different way. And so if you actually wanted to not have a gender element, you use male. I mean, whatever, this is a tangent. But I think even if it was a she, the interpretation might have been more directly that it's a woman who's, you know, modern woman kind of thing. Um, if he had found a way to still, to still, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? You think that if it was a girl, it would have changed everything about it? Or change my view of it? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I, I just feel like, I mean, because it's supposed to be, it's sort of coded as this is a boy and the tree is the mother. I mean, yes, parents j- collectively. I just but- saw it as child. Because I, I see my parents as the giving tree and myself as a child as well. 
I, I, I see that the same thing. Like my parents gave and gave and gave and gave and, you know, we're good kids, but are we an equivalent to what they were for us? No. And I don't even think that we can be, mm-hmm. you know, and now our energies are into our children doing the same thing. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it's kind of a, a handbook for narcissists. Is there anything else we want to address? Mm. Do we want to respond to any listener comments? Yeah, there were um, lots of good comments, as usual, in the last episode. Uh, there was a long thread posted by uh, Magic Wade. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> name. It's a, a great name. Um, uh, and she, she, she wrote... Uh, just, I think, adding and clarifying our comments a little bit about the nuclear family. Uh, she said the discourse celebrating decline the nuclear family and bending over backwards to negatively associate marriage with right-wing conservatism is more about race than gender. You guys are looking at this from an elite perspective, but low marriage rates among white women who attend Ivy League colleges and work for media companies in, mar- in major cities aren't um, uh, they aren't the groups whose choices are being implicitly defended by this discourse. Um, that's because the choices of these groups aren't readily associated with persistent social problems like high rates of youth violence in black communities coupled with low educational attainment. Conservatives believe these problems are caused by deterioration of the black family are best solved by family formation and following the success sequence than by governmental inter- uh, intervention. The white progressives are just getting out ahead of these arguments by acting like they were cool with the decline of the nuclear family all along, but they aren't if their behavior is any indication. And right. then she cites a bunch of people who are like writing about the declining of nuclear family and how it's not that bad, but are actually married themselves. Yeah. So this is the um, uh, loosening standards for the, but not for me. Yeah. I wonder what, what is it? What is this impulse of, um, I I, I think that there's some of this is like performative tolerance to some degree that, (laughs) you know, I will, who are you to judge? You know, yeah, well, it's 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 it being inclusive and not being judgmental. Yeah, um, and it's a little bit being cool, but I think it's look. I, I think it's you can say I'm gonna have certain standards for myself, but I'm not so rigid that I think everybody should live that way. I mean, you could say like, yes, I'm going to get up every morning and make my bed, but I don't think that necessarily everybody has to do yeah, that. Yeah, except it goes in one direction. Like, they don't they don't feel that, okay, well, some people want to get married at 19 to their high school sweethearts, and that that is also, like, a, a valid choice. I don't think they're writing pieces, think pieces, defending young marriage you know like young uh well i think that i think we're gonna start to see that change i mean not by the same women though right like rebecca traster is not gonna do it (laughs) no but that's because i think that certain generations of liberal-minded people are just so programmed to resist like fundamentalist religious kind of doctrine like if you know if you grew up in the 80s you're constantly hearing fire breathing fundamentalist preachers jerry falwell and the like talking about how you should never have sex out of marriage and they were you know there was just if if you were going to have traditional social values that completely correlated with being not only uncool but being extremely intolerant and bigoted so i think it's just very hard to decouple your thinking from that kind of baseline programming but uh you know, I, the point that Magic was making was that this, <laughs> we, where we see out of wedlock births, um, and single parent households, single mother households is in the black community and that we failed to mention that. And yeah, we, I, I didn't mention it 
for a variety of reasons. However, you also see it in with poor whites all the time. You go to rural communities and it's filled with white people who have multiple children by different parents. Yeah. So it, this, <laughs> this is a, this is not, this has to do with the uh, poverty and lack of education and lack of, um, lack of opportunities. I mean, the same reason I was talking about women not wanting to marry the fathers of their children because it's like having another child in the house. And I've heard black women say that. And I've also heard poor white women say that. Yeah. I, I, I there are a lot of reasons that go into why lower income Americans are kind of making different decisions when it comes to marriage. What bothers me about the discourse that kind of just says, well, this is okay, even though, you know, in the last episode, we sort of defended uh, Rebecca Traster a little bit, um, a tiny bit, not a lot. Uh, but it, 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 it matters that we create certain political incentives, like certain incentives in our society. Like we're, yeah, you know, to the extent that people who are making policy read the Atlantic, um, you know, th that, and that, that is how they get clued in into sort of important issues, or that is how they get the message that this is an okay thing to tackle. And this is, you know, like, because these writers and, and, and journalists are raising awareness about real problems. Now people think that there are real problems. Now policymakers start to address them. The, the work that some of these feminists who think they're being super hyper tolerant, um, does indirectly is, you know, make it a less of a, uh, the incentives are not as intense, um, on policymakers to tackle this issue because they don't even think, they're not even sure if it's an issue that needs tackling at all. Mm. Um, and this wasn't always the case. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I read this really interesting book, um, on the subject, um, particularly when it, it about, the events before and after the publishing of the Moynihan report. Uh, this was in, um, I think it was at 19, like 65 or something, somewhere around that, like the civil war, uh, civil, civil rights era. Yeah. This was um, Daniel Pat Johnson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 65. Daniel Pat Patrick Moynihan, who was a Democrat, um, for working for, um, the government in various, uh, positions throughout his, his career had, uh, published a report, uh, for, for Johnson, uh, for President Johnson, um, that was, you know, now it's, it's understood as the Moynihan report. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was uh, the report on black family life. And he specifically talked about in the report using kind of like interesting, uh, maybe the language was a little intense, but pretty, it was he, pretty direct. Right. Um, and he, you know, it, it, it was interesting because this, this, this man, um, the, the book goes into, uh, uh, the history of like the sort of the biography of, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, of his upbringing in kind of a lower income, uh, environment in New York and how much that affected him. And, uh, the, I think he was also raised with like a single mother. So there were kind of, there were a lot of problems that he recalled having to deal with. Um, and he understood how entrenched these issues can, can become, especially within certain like, like kind of ethnic racial kind of contexts. And he wanted to prevent that from happening, uh, to the black community. He was seeing that there were more and more out of wedlock births. 
Um, and it's, it, it was interesting because there was not a lot that you, there were some policies that had changed and yet, um, the out of wedlock births were just increasing. Um, like even, even as, you know, uh, you would see maybe, you would see at times like black unemployment would improve, but the out of, out of wedlock births would still continue to rise. So it was kind of an interesting conundrum of what's going on here. And he was really concerned about it because he, he understood that, a, a two parent, you know, household can be the difference between, uh, you know, making it in America, like having the, having what you need to make it in America and getting trapped in, in this cycle of poverty. And he, you know, he, he wrote this report, uh, in the sixties and now it feels like, well, <laughs> I mean, it is yeah. kind of what he feared kind of did take place. Um, it's hard to deny that there was a lot of truths in that book, uh, in that report. And he was a liberal. I mean, let's be clear. He was a Democrat. He was a uh, Democrat. Yeah. In his later years, I think he might have either switched around, become kind of a neocon, but you know, whatever. A lot well, there was a that. huge incident in my college. I wrote about this in my book. So when I was a freshman, uh, in college, um, Dan Moynihan came to speak. No. And, uh, there was an altercation, or not even altercation, just an, ex uh, an exchange of words with uh, a black student. Um, he was giving a, I think, like a pretty innocuous talk. And I believe this happened like at the reception afterwards. And there was a black student who like asked him something about his policy or maybe actually about the Moynihan report. And I think he might have been a little tipsy and he said something, they, they got into an argument and he said something that was interpreted as, why don't you just go back to where you came from? <laughs> and I'm sure it wasn't like, go back to Africa. It was something like, you know, do you want to, this person was complaining about the state of, of like black poor people at that time. It would have been 1989 or something like that. Anyway, I'm sure he didn't mean it in a, in a overtly racist way, but it came across not great. And it resulted in, uh, the pro student protests because he was being given an hmm. honorary chair, uh, position. He was giving and being given an award essentially by the college and it, it melted down into student protests and they like canceled classes and everybody was out there and it made the local news and it was a huge, huge deal. So, uh, Moynihan's yeah. legacy lives on. Do you think that Democrats your age ish tend not to be from working class or poor backgrounds? It's definitely change, right? Like there's something that like, definitely poor whites are not going to the Democrats the way that they used to. Um, right. That's changed for sure. You, you might see, you know, poor immigrants of different in, in, that have different kinds of backgrounds going to different places. But I think that the definitely the class implications has changed. And I def I, I've started to see the Democratic Party as like the party of well to do whites, really, um, in more recent times with a few like tokens sprinkled in. Uh, but it it's hard not to get that feeling now. Um, but I don't know if you could have like a, a Moynihan in in Democratic politics. I think you would see somebody like him with the Republicans, but it's it's just terrible to see how his report was received. There was a lot of civil rights activists who were, 
you know, kind of like performatively, like you know, making a big you know case out of out of how how racist it all was, and that really was incumbent on the like uh, they were blaming the victim that they we need to take we need to um uh think about what we as a country have done to create this environment for 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 Black Americans and what we we need to fix that first before we yeah uh, you know go go looking into their homes and you know judging them on their family formations and i think that you know that there's a kernel of truth to that but at the same time this was a big problem he was right to point this out this was a, mm-hmm. this was a problem it has entrenched uh, within the, the the black community and among lower class like lower income people everywhere it's a terrible thing for them it doesn't seem like it's it's not helping them move forward it's not helping their children um but it, it how do you talk about it without sounding like a you know heritage foundation like pain? No, I know that's why I, that's why I didn't specify. The yeah, black community and I think in our last I really think the heritage foundation should should pay us. Um, I I know that a certain amount of people are always. I mean, they always say that you sold out to the right, but I've yet to see a penny. Yeah, I know. This isn't my idea of selling out to the right, selling right. out to anybody. Exactly. I know. We've mentioned the heritage foundation twice now. In this episode, oh my god, oh my! God. I think if you if you do it another time, it'll be, yeah, well, some um, of them, but yeah, Moynihan, he was a, this is a smart guy in a lot of ways, very interesting figure, a very interesting figure, yeah, yeah. yeah they don't make him like that anymore, unfortunately, but yeah, it, it, so that we didn't talk about that, and now we're gonna get screwed because now we now we touched on it, now we talked about race, well. So thank you, Magic Wade. Thanks, Magic. Ugh. Love that name. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it is a nice name. Anyway, all right. Do we need to tell the the folks anything? Any, yeah. Any Subscribe. Uh, we have bonus episodes now, and they are they're good, like full bonus episodes. You're going to get teasers of them here and there, so you can see what you're missing out on and hopefully be incentivized to stop being such a freeloader. God, I know. Yeah. Uh, um. Anything else? Any announcements? Uh, we have a founding member hangout. That's right. Coming up. Yes. Yeah. We that's do. That's what it is. We have a founding member hangout so you can say to our face what you've always wanted to say. Yeah, they're cool. They're like, um, Zoom meetups with me and Megan, cameras on, pants off. Oh, no, that's just, that's just me, but you can't see it. Uh, cameras on, uh, what, what else? Uh, yeah, this is going to happen on Sunday, October 15th yeah. at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 4.30 p.m. Pacific Time. And if you're a founding member, we will uh, send you and a link you. and you will meet with us on Zoom and you can ask us anything you want. Uh, and we may or may not answer, but we will be there. And uh, it's fun. We've got a lot of, yeah. we've got great, great folks. Great folks with an X. You, We've got great people. You people are great. <laughs> yeah. You people. All right. All right. Is that it? Yeah, I think it's it. Okay. All right. I'm Take gonna care. Go, I'm going to go write a band book now. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.